had a successful career in real estate and we bought undervalued real estate. And I felt it was creative to give life to old real estate to make it new. It was commercial real estate, loved it. Mm-hmm. But I was starting to get tired of buying things. I wanted to build something. So here I am, a real estate guy in 1995, saying this thing called the internet sounds really cool. I want to be part of it. And so there weren't that many companies. There was Microsoft, there was Yahoo, there was Apple, there was Intuit, just a handful of companies in the Valley. And so I went to them and said, hey, I'd love to come work with you. And they're like, you're a real estate guy. Do you want to work in facilities? Like, no, I want to build a company with you. And so that's where I learned one of my critical lessons in life, which is the ability to bridge from where you are to where you want to go. And my bridge, it took me a while, but I realized in real estate, I learned how to do deals. I learned how to close. I learned once you close the deal, how to manage it. And that was the bridge. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. Welcome back to the Sidcast, Sid Finkelstein, and I'm delighted to have Doug Galen as my guest today for episode number 106. Doug Galen is the co-founder and CEO of RippleWorks. RippleWorks is all about the needs of social ventures. They provide practical support that can really affect these entrepreneurs and their teams that are working to improve lives. RippleWorks operates and has worked in 59 countries. They have a portfolio of 110 organizations that they've helped and assisted in their work. And that adds up, by the way, to almost a quarter of a billion individuals around the world that have been helped indirectly from RippleWorks as they help work with entrepreneurs in social ventures. And that's pretty cool because this is someone who has a deep Silicon Valley background and has worked in all sorts of different companies, just about all of them for profit. And I think it's really kind of cool to think about. He was, for example, at Shopkick, which is a mobile app startup that was backed by Kleiner Perkins and Greylock. If you don't know them, they are the royalty of the venture capital industry. And Shopkick was actually sold to a Fortune 50 company. He was a senior vice president at Shutterfly. You know, Shutterfly, the photo company, helped grow revenue from 50 million to 500 million and a successful IPO as well. He was a senior executive at eBay and worked earlier in his career in finance in a company called eLoan that also had a successful IPO. And so Doug Galen's been in Silicon Valley, has worked with leading companies, and he's really helped build them. He's kind of the master business developer. He knows how to build organizations, and he knows how to sell. And as a result, that skill set is critical in company after company. And he has now turned his attention to helping social enterprises with the same skill set, and not just himself, but he's created this entire organization, RippleWorks, that is, I guess you can call it a consulting firm for social ventures, and a consulting firm that's designed to help them have an even bigger impact. Doug's also great to talk to because, you know, he graduated from University of California at Berkeley in 1988, and he stayed in Silicon Valley. And so he's one of these people that has been in Silicon Valley for three and a half decades now. And what was it like back then? What was Silicon Valley like? He was there when the internet first took off, He was there during various waves and troughs in the industry. And what was the culture like? And how do people behave? And how do they behave now compared to how they used to before? 
And are you surprised to see Silicon Valley become Silicon Valley? All kinds of questions like that we get into that I think are really interesting. In some ways, the most compelling part of the story, at least something that really resonated with me, is Doug's personal story about his family, in particular his daughter, who was going through a major moment in her own life. And Doug was watching this and it gave him some pause to think about how is he contributing? How is he helping? Because that's what his daughter was doing. What can he do to change the world, to make the world a better place? And it really did have a big impact because he shifted around that time to actually create RippleWorks and start to build that up. I find that aspect of his story really interesting for, I mean, a lot of reasons. One, about the personal choices people make. But number two, to make that type of shift, a lot of people talk the talk, but not everybody walks the talk. He has. And number three, in our age of COVID, many people are reflecting on their lives and self-assessing where they are. And they're thinking about, are they really doing what they want? Where's meaning going to come from? What is meaning? How do I want to live my life? These types of questions people are asking more and more. And he did. And I think for that reason, a lot of his story is really going to resonate. So it's a great episode. It's a great story. Ripple works. And the RippleWorks Foundation does amazing work that Doug's going to describe as well. And so as usual, we get to learn about Doug Galen and we get to learn about what Doug Galen has been doing in his life that has had such a big impact. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein. And I am here from beautiful Hanover, New Hampshire, talking to Doug Galen. Hi, Doug. Hi, Sid. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being with us. We were just chatting before. You're in Silicon Valley in Menlo Park, and you grew up there, I think you were saying, which is really kind of interesting. I wasn't planning to start with that, but you happened to mention, I said, what was it like as a kid and what era are we talking about growing up in Silicon Valley? Yeah, so I graduated high school in 1980, so that's the era. My mom grew up in a coal mining town in Pittsburgh, and my father grew up in San Francisco, and his father, so my grandfather also grew up in San Francisco. Menlo Park growing up was, there was no such thing as Silicon Valley. Menlo Park was just a sleepy town, a bunch of cottages next to Stanford University, professors, 30,000 people, and it's still 30,000 people today. But now what was once apple orchards is the famous Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road is the famous place that the mecca of venture capital of which none of that really existed back when I was growing up. Yeah. So you stayed in the neighborhood, let's say, because you went to Berkeley. And I think you got an MBA at Berkeley in the late 80s, right? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. I did. So were people talking about, quote unquote, Silicon Valley back in 88, like when you were graduating, your classmates were graduating? Is that something that was a thing then? It was a modest thing. The thing then was going to be an investment banker or going to be a consultant or go be a marketer for Anheuser-Busch. I mean, kind of big company, big jobs. There wasn't much going on in Silicon Valley. I was in my first career, I've had three careers, and I was in real estate, which was a pretty big thing. And so I worked for an investment company, and we bought real estate around the country and turned it around and fixed it up and gave it life again. And those were the kinds of things going on back then. If you were a big-time engineer, you were maybe building chips, so you were hardware. That was kind of a big deal. There wasn't much in terms of software. There really wasn't Microsoft to say not much of yet, which was one of the originals or Silicon Graphics. Right. Well, of course, there was HP in the old days, right? And also, I don't know whether you knew any of the alums from there or not, but Fairchild Semiconductor, which goes back to the late 50s, it's kind of this legendary company, right, that included Bob Noyce and a bunch of people, who was one of the founders of Intel, and a bunch of really famous people. And they worked for William Shockley who won a Nobel Prize 
for his work related to transistors. William Shockley, unfortunately, was a very, very difficult person to work with and ended up espousing some highly egregious and inappropriate beliefs over time, which is sad. But he was a genius in his day. And I think his mother, this is what I remember reading, his mother lived there. He went to Caltech and then he went to MIT for his PhD and he went back and he was at Bell Labs in the East and then he wanted to move back near his mom. Yeah, it was funny growing up then because Fairchild was in Mountain View. And Mountain View was all of five miles away from Menlo Park. But that was a forever away. Mountain View is where chips were built. Mm -hmm. And Palo Alto is where Hewlett Packard was. And so growing up in Menlo Park, the fathers that I knew worked at Hewlett Packard. And they were literally the ones with the pocket protectors and the different colored pens in their shirts. And, you know, they were just the nerdiest of nerds wonderful people, engineering types. And, you know, they wanted to solve every way on, you know, from how to build the perfect fire if you went camping to laying out the sleeping bag just right or what have you. That's really interesting. I wonder how, like, what happened to make that transition? Because I've been curious about it. And I'm sure people have studied this, probably PhDs in this topic as well. But I always thought that there was something about HP and Shockley and Fairchild that they gave birth to this. And there's this old story about Steve Jobs coming out there and talking to, I forgot if it was Hewlett or Packard sleeping on his couch. Who knows what's true and what's not true. But that's the legendary story. And so that becomes... Kind of, it's almost like a Star Wars thing, right? The father and the son. <laughs> it creates this connection. I don't know whether you've ever looked into it or thought about it. I'm curious. Well, Microsoft, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, when they were at Harvard for a whole year, that interface, you know, Steve Jobs was working on it. Apple was working on it. But it was really Microsoft who blew up the ability for us mere mortals who aren't technologists, of which I'm one of those, mm-hmm. to be able to interact with a computer. That really kicked off phase one. It was really interesting. And you think about, you mentioned, you know, when you graduated in 88, I think, from Berkeley, people were taking jobs that I would say most East Coast schools are still dominated that way with investment banking and consulting, some big companies. Now, of course, there's a lot of people that do go into tech, even from East Coast schools, although probably nothing compared to what's going on at Stanford and Berkeley. But it's just interesting to think about that shift. You were in real estate, though finance and real estate. And real estate's always been big. I mean, here we are in 2021 and we're talking about record prices being hit for residential real estate. I think that the numbers are unprecedented emerging out of the COVID world. But what was your sense of real estate and finance? I'm curious because you did a transition, maybe this is career too, (laughs) when you went into maybe a bit more e-commerce, but you got your way towards being a very early employee, almost like a founder of e-loan. And I'm curious about how that happened, because as soon as you put the E in front of something, we're in a modern world that everyone understands. But that's not the world you graduated from. No, e-loan, which I'll get to, was 1996. And that also, when you think about what your question of kind of the birth of the next generation, 96 was, you know, for the common folk, the internet. And so... That was another pivotal moment. My transition was not easy. It was actually one of the more difficult parts of my life, which was I had a successful career in real estate and we bought undervalued real estate. And I felt it was creative to give life to old real estate to make it new. It was commercial real estate, loved it. Mm -hmm. But I was starting to get tired of buying things. I wanted to build something. So here I am a real estate guy in 1995 saying this thing called the internet sounds really cool. I want to be part of it. 
And so there weren't that many companies. There was Microsoft, there was Yahoo, there was Apple, there was Intuit, just a handful of companies in the Valley. And so I went to them and said, hey, I'd love to come work with you. And they're like, you're a real estate guy. Do you want to work in facilities? I'm like, no, I want to build a company with you. And you know, they didn't see me as a product manager. They didn't see me as a marketer. They didn't see me as anything. And so that's where I learned one of my critical lessons in life, which is the ability to bridge from where you are to where you want to go in your career. And you need to be able to come up with a story that holds. And my bridge, it took me a while, but I realized in real estate, I learned how to do deals. I learned how to close. I learned once you close the deal, how to manage it, how to do analysis. But more importantly, I learned how to do deals. And so I'm a real estate guy. I can't get away from that. I know how to do deals. And it turns out that the internet was at that point run by a bunch of engineers and technologists who didn't know a lot about doing deals. So my bridge to somewhere from career one to career two was lean into real estate, leverage that I know how to do deals. And I joined Elon as the third employee behind the first two founders as the guide to do all of our corporate development, business development, drive our traffic, figure out you know how to create partnerships so that we could get consumers. And that was the bridge. Yeah, that's actually great advice. It's actually a story that people that go for MBA degrees, they often have to do that. Or they want to do that because, you know, an MBA is a transitional degree for many people. It's not just let's get another degree. I don't think too many people are doing that, but they want to redefine. They want to rebrand themselves. And it's a lot easier when you do that transition through school, but you still have to have a story to tell. You always have to have a story to tell. Yeah. And first of all, most of us don't go to business school and less right. of us are going. Most of us aren't privileged to be able to go to business Correct. school. So this bridge of changing careers is just critically vital for all people. I mean, even, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, you're not going to have one career for your entire life. No, the estimates are, you know, four or five careers these days. And it's a daunting thing. It's a very exciting, really, because it means you're always going to be learning. There's a creativity in there, but it's probably pretty scary, too. Oh, God, my wife is listening. You just scared her. I've had three careers. If she thinks I'm going to have four (laughs) or five, I'm in trouble. I have a feeling you might have a fourth and maybe a fifth, too, given the journey that you've been on. So it wouldn't shock me. And I bet it wouldn't shock her either now that we get right down to it. (laughs) So what was the story with Elon? What was special about it? Elon was one of those moments in my life that we all have those treasured moments that stick with us forever. And they're usually in our 20s, where you have that camaraderie of building something where not everybody knows how to do it. You're all Mm -hmm. new. You're all rookies, figuring it out as you go. You know, you may be married, you may not. You probably don't have kids. And we just worked our tails off and had a phenomenal time. We were on a mission. And we thought the mortgage market was unfair We thought there was a black box of fees, that the banks were not being transparent. And so we thought that we could create a more transparent way to get a loan, that it would be more equal, that maybe would even reduce costs by being more competitive. And that was our mission of e-loan. We hit it just right in terms of a right idea in a growing market. And a lot of venture capitalists were interested in, as you kind of said earlier, anything with an E in front of it was pretty entertaining. So we raised money from Benchmark and Sequoia and SoftBank in the go-go years. And we took it public and we ran it up and we wrote a lot of loans for people. We then added auto loans and student loans. And it was a really special time. And, you know, we got lightning in a bottle, our first company in the internet space, then went on to do others. But that was really special. 
Yeah. And so that was, you know, really when the internet was starting to take off and people were paying attention to it. And at what point was it clear that the internet was the real deal? And I say that because there were at least two, probably thousands, if not millions, but at least two really smart people that were not convinced. Jack Welch, the legendary CEO of GE, and Bill Gates from Microsoft. He quickly pivoted, which is what life is all about, but he's on record as saying they didn't really think the internet was going to be nearly as big as other people are talking about. Yeah, I think there's two things. I think one is we didn't know at the beginning because we're talking about getting a mortgage from an invisible person that doesn't exist, which to people today is like, of course. But at that point in time, you know, that was like going to Mars, how people think about going to Mars today. And so there was a real question whether you would be willing to get a loan through bits and bytes and not deal with the person that you are facing physically. And so we didn't know if that was going to work. But I think, you know, you bring up like Bill Gates and Jack Welch. One of the things that I teach is human-centered design at the Stanford Business School. And we always talk about a beginner's mindset. When you have a beginner's mindset where you are looking at something fresh, you see things that other people may not see because you bring no baggage in terms of how you see it. I think the other thing in starting companies is you're naive. And that naivete is a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing because when we started Elon, that's all we knew. I mean, this just makes sense to us. Now, if we really knew all the troubles that we were going to face, you know, like how do you notarize when you're doing something digitally? How do you notarize the documents? How do you get the signatures? How do you work with real estate agents who make commissions off of kickbacks for sending loans to mortgage brokers? If we knew all of this stuff, I don't know that we would have started e-loan, but we didn't know all of it. And so that naivete and ignorance is a blessing for entrepreneurs. Now, that's interesting because you had some big time venture capitalists that supported you. And it's yeah. their job to be asking those types of questions, among other things. Did they not ask them or they just trusted in the team? Well, there's a whole topic around venture capitalists. I'd say that venture capitalists look for trends. They like to be perceived as mavericks, but what they're looking for is almost risk arbitrage. Is They want to be mavericks and say they're taking big risk, and some do, but others are following who else invested or let me see your consumer growth numbers. Our first investors absolutely bet on us and the craziness of what we were doing. And then the other investors, as we matured, were looking at what are your growth numbers? And the growth numbers told a story. We were growing exponentially on the number of people that were coming to visit our site. Then we saw the number of people applying for loans and then our ability to close those loans. So the numbers started to speak for themselves and that attracted capital. And I'm sure you've heard the stories of the companies that have taken off, be it Facebook or Airbnb, they go and raise venture capital money. They're growing so fast, they don't even touch the money that they raised because the growth is happening so fast. Mm -hmm. That's a dream come true for a venture capitalist when you can catch that kind of momentum. Right. The other thing you brought up that I want to probe a little bit, it's almost philosophical, is around trust. Because, you know, here you are getting a loan and you're not seeing a human being. And it's a very personal thing. It's probably the biggest thing you're ever going to do financially for the average person. Your house is your biggest investment for most people, I think. Now we, again, we put our 2021 lens and it's like a no-brainer. The stuff we do online is unbelievable. People are finally worried about privacy, but they say one thing and act quite the other way. But there had to have been trust. And in retrospect, it's kind of obvious. But at the time, what did you do to engender that trust? And then maybe speaking more generally, not just about e-loan, 
Why do you think this whole internet thing worked in business after business when it depended on a fundamental degree of trust that one could imagine would not have been forthcoming? Yeah, so I've learned this through some experience about trust building, having the chance to do this a few times, starting from nothing. And when you have nothing as a young company, develop trust, there's kind of two fundamental ways. One, put testimonials on your homepage or whatever. Leverage any testimonial from anyone who had a good experience. Two, any credibility that you can get from even like the Better Business Bureau seal. I mean, anything from affiliation with something or someone. It could be an article by the Wall Street Journal. It could be a board of advisors. It could be your investors. But attach credibility to something Mm -hmm. is what really helped for us. And then the other is customer service. Live and die by, you know, providing, in our case, we needed to provide that personal touch. So we really invested in customer service. In fact, I'll tell you a very counterintuitive story. There was a point that we had figured out how to do pre-qualification of a loan in like 20 seconds. And so really fast. We thought, how great that we could let you know right away, Mm pre-qualification, hit print, here's a letter, you can take it to your realtor, you can show them you're pre-qualified, how great is this? And we noticed that when we launched the 22nd pre-qualification, conversion rates went down, not up. And the reason after digging into it was the fact that it decreased trust because how could you possibly have done the analysis that fast that this thing must be flimsy? And so that was an interesting lesson on trust in a great product isn't always about speed. We never would have thought of that unless we had launched, learned, and failed. Right. Yeah. And so eLoan is a success, but you went through, I'm not sure when you were acquired, but you went through the bubble and the bursting of the bubble. Or were you still there at that time? It was March 2001, I think, when everything really went up. I was. I was just finishing my time there after an amazing run. The company started about a mile from my house, and we moved it to 50 miles away because we needed to hire hundreds of staff in the mortgage industry, and they all lived in the East Bay, which is kind of my version of Siberia, far, far, far away. And so I sat very sadly had to phase out of the company. I, we had a new child. I just couldn't do the commute. I was never home. And then of all things, I joined eBay. We had a co-investor, uh, Benchmark Capital, um, that was at eBay and Elo. And so 2001 is when I made the transition over to eBay. So what was it like when the bubble burst? I mean, eBay came out on the other side and keeps on going, but did it completely blindside people or were there people, maybe venture capitalists in particular, jumping in and trying to get to that IPO as fast as possible and not worrying about what? No, you know, we had our first bubble in 99. So we went public and our stock opened at 12 and it closed at 72. It was one of the greatest days. It's even in a CNN has me running a team meeting when they do pick the decade of the 90s of what that incredible feeling was. And the stock went from 72 to two over several months. And so that was a very difficult time. And we couldn't sell and we needed to stay committed to the company. And it was a lot of personal challenges there around stock options and what to do with that. But we were able to continue to serve our customers. That didn't change, but the value of the company drastically changed. At that point, venture capitalists weren't seeing buying opportunities. They were seeing, you know, oh my God, opportunities. How do you hang on? How do you cut costs? How do you make sure that you can survive not raising any more capital? Yeah. Do you feel like the culture of the Valley changed very much because of that? I mean, that's quite a slap to go through that. Yeah, I would say. What was the learning that came out of that? 
Yeah, the learning was you got to have a company that actually adds value and you got to withstand the hard times. You got to be able to build a culture that withstands the hard time. But if I'm perfectly honest, it's a short-term memory. As soon as things start to come back, the feeding frenzy of money comes back in and it all piles up Mm. all over again. And so we've seen these cycles repeat where you go through downtimes, things contract, Mm -hmm. and then it starts to flow all over again. The optimism is both the blessing and curse of Silicon Valley, much more of a blessing, but it's the fact that we feel we can change anything. And I say Silicon Valley, it isn't. It's that mindset of anybody in technology where technology is limitless in terms of the opportunities that it can present. Yeah, the short memory, this is not directly on topic other than on this point about short memory. I think about COVID and our post-COVID world, and I was one of those people saying, I'm never shaking anybody's hand again. Anytime I'm around a crowd, 10 years from now, I'm going to have a mask. Well, you know, it didn't take long. We were at a party in the weekend. Yes, I was shaking hands. Yes, I was hugging. I actually liked it quite a bit. And I don't know, it seems like even something as terrible as that, we go back to kind of who we are and what we believe in and what we want. And maybe it's just a human nature thing. Maybe it's an American thing because it's such an optimistic, even today, optimistic country. I don't know. So it doesn't surprise me in a way. I would say it's not just tech, maybe not even just entrepreneurialism. There's something about how it's cultural. It's a cultural thing. I would agree with you. Many, many moons ago, people don't know that there's a little secret about the founding of eBay, which, you know, is a dinosaur now, large, been around forever. But people thought that eBay was started by Pierre Omidyar to sell Pez dispensers. And actually, Pierre started it as a social experiment. And the social experiment was he believed that people are basically good. And he wanted to see if strangers would trade with each other, would buy and sell with each other. And they did. And they do. And with all the troubles in the world, with all of the distrust, certainly in the United States and the bipartisan and everything that's going on, at the core, I share that belief that people are basically good. It's the few that are spoiling it for the rest of us. But getting to your COVID example, we want to believe that life is generally positive. That is our human nature. And again, that's another example of trust just a deep level of trust. I always said trust is almost like the underpinnings of a capitalist society, but then it's even bigger than that. You know, you're driving down a highway and you're signaling that you're turning to the next lane. You're trusting that somebody's not going to go do that in front of you or even hit you. Of course, accidents happen and happen a lot, but they hardly ever do relative to the number of actual time that we're on the road. And, you know, just switching lanes is my example. There's just implicit trust in so many things in life. And Maybe it's good to remind ourselves about something like that because we are in a tough time politically and culturally and certainly in this country and actually around the world. Let's go back to eBay for a moment. Was that a big transition for you to go into a trading company from being in real estate and finance, really? It was a medium transition for me to go to eBay. I was in building companies at that mode. I mean, at that point at Elon, I'd done a little bit of everything. And so... There were seven of us who ran the categories at eBay, and internally, we were affectionately referred to as the seven dwarfs. Who knows why? There weren't very many short people, but we were the seven dwarfs who ran the categories, and I loved running a business, which was a handful of categories. So it was a modest transition in working for, at that point, You know, we were several hundred people, and maybe even pushing a thousand at eBay. It's 13,000 now in terms of number of people plus or minus. But eBay assembled the best and the brightest. The people there just were some, you know, gone on to do amazing things, but it was an assemblage of incredible people. Yeah. Were you there at the same time that Maynard Webb was there? Yes, indeed. 
Maynard Webb is one of the true gentlemen, smart, very direct in a wonderful way, respectful way. He's a special human being. Yeah, I'm glad to know that you were there when he was there. I did a podcast with him not that long ago, and he's come to my class at Tuck to visit. And I agree. Actually, what he's doing with his network in venture capital is not unrelated to what you're doing with RippleWorks, which we haven't even gotten to yet. It occurs to me. So let's make sure we hold that thought. There are a couple more stops along the way, and we won't have time to go through every one of these stops in detail. But I want to talk about Shutterfly. And I know I'm skipping over something, but Shutterfly, what made you want to go there? And what's the story? I'm interested today about photography and how that business model works and if it continues to work the same way. Yeah, you know, it's funny. In my career, Shutterfly was incredible. I went there because I love photography. At that point, it was all film with a little bit of digital. There was no such thing as an iPhone. There was these digital cameras. And a friend of mine at eBay got tapped to become the CEO, and he asked me if I would join him, and I did. Shutterfly was about $25 million in revenue, which was a lot of money for a startup, but it was losing about $50 million. And so it was upside down. It needed a new CEO. It needed a whole new strategy and refresh. And so we came in and I got to join Jeff, the CEO, to do that. And then we grew it you know, to $600 million while I was there. Now it's $2 billion and we took it public. And phenomenal ride in terms of facing some big competition. There was hundreds of companies wanting to be a digital photographer based company. Mm -hmm. And we made money by printing things of all things, you know, printing photo books, printing holiday cards, Mm -hmm. printing prints. So we had lots of competition and we had complete and total margin erosion. We had about a hundred percent of our revenue. 90% of our revenue came from four by seven, you know, the little three by five and four by seven prints. We sold them for 45 cents. They cost us about five cents, four cents to make. Huge margin. That's the way Kodak had set the industry. Well, as all the competition came in, the price went from 45 cents to 13 cents, 10 cents. And imagine as an organization needing to show growth to our venture capitalists, but Mm -hmm. your price is just eroding by 75%. So we had to create new products and services. And that was strategically fascinating. And that's when we created the photo book which took you know something that you sell a print for seven cents or 10 cents and you could sell a photo book for $40 with lots of prints in it, you would design your photo book. So Shutterfly was an exciting time to help people, non-technologists like me, enjoy the beauty of our photography or our memories. And we loved what we would call printing smiles, you know, to get that, <laughs> that image back of that memory was a really feel-good business. When do you know that it's time to leave a company? That's a really great question. And it's actually one of the more important questions in life. I was talking to my daughter about this very thing last night. She's 21. She's working at Adobe this summer, an internship in the employee engagement team. She's having a wonderful time at Adobe, but it was like we were talking about in life, you should be pursuing what you love to do. And one of the things is to have the pursuit to do it. The second is to stop when it's not working. And so I had my moments in the mirror where I knew I was out of sync with my values or what made me happy. And so step one is to acknowledge it. And so I could go through the moments in my life, but the movement from career two to career three was absolutely one of those that we can talk about in a moment. But I think the first is to acknowledge when you're out of sync. That's one. Two then is to figure out what to do about it. In my case, I have a loving wife, married 28 years. She was a rock. She's been a rock. And she was there with me when I was going through these transitions, both financially, because I took risk, big risk, but more importantly, emotionally, I had someone to talk to, to navigate of what do I do next? So acknowledge it 
and then have a trusted friend, partner, parent, counselor to help you navigate. Yeah, because you're someone who has had these, you said, three careers, but different jobs, big jobs as part of these different stages. And so you've had to do it. And as you were talking about, it just occurred to me, you know, how do you actually know? I yeah, mean, I think it should apply for yeah. me. There wasn't another job for me in my growth. We had an awesome CEO and that was his job. And I was falling in love with mobile because there actually wasn't much going on in mobile at this point, 2010-ish. And so iPhone was just coming out and that seemed like the next great opportunity. And at Shutterfly, we weren't doing a ton with mobile yet. And so I wanted to dedicate the next stage to mobile. So I felt I'd hit a ceiling in my personal growth. I felt there was another opportunity. I'd been there seven years. We had full you know, succession ability that I wasn't leaving the organization in a bad way. That one was not hard because it felt natural. Right, right. You know, it sounds like you weren't really worried or afraid of making these kind of big career transitions from one company to another. You could have stayed at Shutterfly probably for the rest of your career, but you were willing to take a risk and you didn't see it as a risk. Is that an accurate way of describing it? That is. I would say going from Shutterfly to the next one, Shopkick, I didn't see as a big risk. Now, Going from real estate to e-loan was a huge risk, and that was difficult. And then going from Shopkick to starting Rippleworks was also a perceived big risk by me, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a big risk, but I was scared to do it. You were. So let's quickly talk about what Shopkick was about and then get to Rippleworks. So what's um, the, what was the story there? Yeah, Shopkick, I don't know if you remember at the beginning, I said my mom grew up in a coal mining town in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her father and grandfather ran the general store in this little coal mining town. And I have these amazing memories of going to this coal mining town and walking into the store and seeing you know, them run the store and you can just go buy something and pay on credit at the end of the month and mm-hmm. you know, they know your name. And I remember mm-hmm. I bought you know, some red paint to paint a truck and you know, the next day, you know, how was the red paint? Did it work out? Right. For I mean, I just loved, <laughs> loved this personal feel. And so Shopkick was a mobile app when you walk into a store, Macy's or Best Buy or what have you, it improved the shopping experience. And my belief was it would make the shopping experience more personal. And it pulled up my memories of that coal mining town in Pennsylvania. And so Shopkick was backed by Greylock and Reed Hoffman was on the board and it was backed by Kleiner Perkins. And we built up a sizable business of helping people with the shopping experience when they went into the big retailers. I was the number two person there, loved it. And then it was my daughter's 13th birthday where I had an extreme moment in the mirror that led me to saying, I need to go find a little more purpose in my life. And that's when I left Shopkick and didn't know I was going to start Rippleworks, but knew I had to better marry purpose and impact into my day job. It was outside my day job. It was on the periphery and I had to change it. I had to. When you say you had to, was there a precipitating moment or it just was a culmination of thinking and self-awareness that led you there? I think there were, I'm going to throw out a number of four things and then I always forget what the four things were, but there was background and then foreground. There were a couple of things that happened in the background. One, I was always traveling. Our daughter was in the seventh grade. We only have one child. And I was always, always on the road with the CMOs of all these retailers. I was missing out on the precious years of our daughter's life. Two, a friend of ours' son died tragically. And that really had an impact on me that life is short or that life is finite. And I need to honor 
what really matters. And then three was, we're Jewish and there's something called the bat mitzvah, bar bat mitzvah. When you turn 13, a child runs a service. It's the commemoration of them becoming an adult, which, hey, at 13, you are not an adult. But in the Jewish tradition, that's the way it goes. And at a bar bat mitzvah, as a parent, you get up, you say something wonderful about your child. You hopefully give them a life lesson. It's a teachable moment. And so our daughter, Jessica, and I talked a lot about what are you going to do to give back to society? Anything. Pick up the piece of trash, donate blood, volunteer, whatever, but think about that. And then what are you going to do to make the world a better place? And I was having a wonderful time at Shopkick, but I was helping people shop. And if I'm delivering that message to my daughter of what are you going to do to make the world a better place? And I'm not. That was my moment in the mirror of not living my values life is short. I have to change. I have to. I have the opportunity. I have the ability. That's where I should be spending my energy. Yeah. How did it end up that it was RippleWorks? And maybe you should explain what it is in the first place and how it ended up that that would be the place where you try to have your impact that you're describing. Yes. So RippleWorks is a life journey. Everyone says, you know, go follow your passion. I agree with that. But what if you don't know what it is? Correct. Most of us don't. I did not. I didn't wake up saying I want to be an architect or a nurse or a doctor. I didn't know this. And my life has been a journey. So first of all, I didn't know that RippleWorks was in my future at all. I just knew moments along in my life, I needed to course correct. And that led me to wanting to have a job that is a good company and does good. RippleWorks is a foundation that I started with Chris Larson, who was back at the Elon. So he was the founder, the co-founder of ELO, and we stayed friends all these years. It's a foundation that is dedicated to other entrepreneurs, but social entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who are trying to change the world positively. They're trying to address tough challenges that we're facing. It could be climate, healthcare, education, financial inclusion, helping the poor, what have you. And we are a pro-entrepreneur foundation that is just trying to help these entrepreneurs. I could go into more details of what we do. We didn't have any money at the beginning. We provided services, which I can talk about. But I didn't know RippleWorks was in my future when I quit Shopkick, left Shopkick. I went on a walkabout and I went and talked to lots of social entrepreneurs. I talked to companies. I talked to funders. And it was really interesting. Every time I met with a funder, I heard the same thing. And the thing that I heard was, do you know any other entrepreneurs that we could fund? Hmm. And I thought about that for a second. I said, you're asking me if you need more entrepreneurs. That Do I know any entrepreneurs? That means you can't get all your money out. Here you are trying to do good in the world, and you're saying that you need more people to hmm. fund. And I always thought money was the scarcest resource. And money is scarce. Don't get me wrong. Foundation, I mean, nonprofits need more money than they have. But there was something else missing, and it was skills. It was more entrepreneurs. It was having the capabilities to scale an organization. And that's what RippleWorks was created for. Chris and I started RippleWorks to do that very thing, which is to help entrepreneurs scale their organizations by solving really practical problems. And you do that not, I'm going to say not only because probably you did some of this early on, but by you or the two of you rolling up your sleeves and working with entrepreneurs by creating a network where you bring in talent and experts. So was that the initial plan? And could you explain how that works? Yeah. So you know how most of our best lessons come from mistakes? Yes, they do. And the ones that the hair on the back of your neck goes up when you start to recall them. Yes. And I have one that is funny how looking back, my career makes total sense. In the moment, it makes no sense. One of those mistakes 
was before we went public at Shutterfly, I had the opportunity to create our foundation and run it. And then it had a bunch of IPO shares. It was a good, strong foundation. Well, our first event with our company was we took the whole company. We went to a school nearby in the barrio of Redwood City, California, where we spent the day helping this middle school. And the middle school had bad IT systems. They had no social presence. They lacked fundraising capabilities. We brought our engineers, our marketers, these amazing people. And we spent all day at the school and we cleaned every inch of graffiti off of their walls. And we built a vegetable garden. And it was great. And at the end of that day, they all looked at me and said, seriously, this is the best that we can do. I've got these skills. This school needs these skills. And we cleaned graffiti off of walls. And I just, that stuck with me. And if you actually go back to Pierre Omidy, our people are basically good. What stuck with me is that there are a lot of people who would like to give back, but they Mm -hmm. don't know how. Mm -hmm. In fact, when I left Shopkick, I wanted to give back. And there were some places that I could find, but I needed someone to vet what organization I could help. I needed someone to create a project with the CEO that my skill set would apply. Honestly, I had a day job. I didn't want to sweat all the details of running the project. I needed help. And so that was what created RippleWorks is my walkabout that saw the need for Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs to get skills and my Shutterfly experience of there are so many people who would want to give back. And then my eBay experience of marketplace of that we can do this. Right. You see all these components perfectly in the way you just described it. It's a clear I'll call it nonprofit business opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually makes sense that you were the one to do it, given and, the steps and now you've had. We all aspire to have a dream job that you get to say, I can't believe I get to do this for a living. You know, the energy that you bring, Sid, to podcasts, you do this as a passion. I've listened to your podcast. I've listened to you talk about the passion that you bring. It's what you love to do. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's because I took the moments in the mirror at various stages of my career that I got to now have a job I cannot believe I get to do. It's not a job. And it's only because of facing the realities when I was unhappy or I wasn't achieving my potential as defined by me. Yeah. You know, I coach a lot of students. Most professors do, I think. And I've often said, you know, when Sunday night feels the same as Friday night, you probably got a good thing you're doing, which is what it's been for me for, I've been doing what I'm doing for more than three decades. And it's very, very fortunate. It's very lucky. You feel actually, I bet you feel the same way. You feel a lot of gratitude, even though you created it, you did it. And that's true for many people in their fields. You feel a lot of gratitude that you actually have to do this to can live your life this way, to create this. It's fantastic. Now, the relationships you have with clients, let's call them clients, I'm not sure if that's the word you use, but entrepreneurs, are they short-term or are they long-term? It's a mix, depends on what it is. There's a specific problem, somebody comes in to help, or there's more long-lasting relationships in, I don't know, more of a consulting capacity. I think you may have just been sitting in some of our strategic meetings that we just had this last month, is we are referred ventures by their funders. We can't find all the ventures, the great entrepreneurs in the world, but we can find all the funders. We sit down with the CEO. We say, what are your top three challenges for the next year? What are you trying to achieve? What are your objectives? What are your challenges to overcome those objectives? We almost go through a therapy session and then we say, great, okay, now we know your objective, your challenge, let's overcome it. And so we will engage in four week to four month project to overcome that challenge. We are a player coach. We roll up our sleeves. We bring in an expert from Silicon Valley, or I say that in quotes because it could be anyone who has solved that problem with very few resources. 
at the end of the four weeks to four months, the project's over. We believe in deadlines, end dates, everyone can breathe and take a break for a minute. We are now spending more time to come back to the CEO a few months mm -hmm. later and say, mm -hmm. hey, what's next? What do you need help with? We've been a little transactional and we're now moving towards more of a relationship yeah. so that we can stay with the organization until it has achieved its potential. So we're in about 60 countries now. We've done 150 of these projects. They range from marketing to technology to scaling middle management to hiring. And they're just exciting because they're amazing entrepreneurs. Has COVID affected what you're doing at RippleWorks very much? It has a couple of ways. One is part of what we do is we fly our experts who are working on the projects to wherever the company is for as long as the expert wants to go. They become more culturally aware. They can lean in. It's usually about three to five days. But if they want to stay longer, we support that. And so one is there's no travel. And so we lose that 3D personal connection, you know, not just looking at the screen. The second is there's been more urgent needs. And so we've doubled our staff. We're expanding to meet the need. First of healthcare companies, we had an all hands on deck for a community health working company in Africa where we got 20 of our experts to all help solve this one problem to mm -hmm. change all of the iPad work that these community health workers use to be able to address COVID immediately. And so we responded very quickly on that. And then we had to respond to issues like financial crisis. How as a CEO, do you manage a mental crisis? How do you manage a remote environment where you've been all physical? So it's been hard, but there's been an interesting innovation that has occurred and it's the power of a crisis. What do you do when you can't go to school and you're in Africa? And so the entrepreneurs we support have had to figure out remote learning, literally using AM airwaves to be able to broadcast or farmers, which is the largest workforce in the world, 500 million farmers in this world, supporting 2 billion and family members. They usually have community meetings to be able to share best practices of how to plant. How do you replace that? And so there's been some innovation that has occurred in the last 12 months that are actually going to be better for these interventions to help the farmers or the teachers or the students. Yeah, I can see that. You know, one thing that your description makes me think about is, so you have these experts that go in three to five days, there's many different projects. So there's learning that's happening that's independent or rather in addition to what the experts are learning something that the expert didn't know before, even though they're the expert of the content, it's the application of it. And so you've got these pockets of information and knowledge. And my question is, how are you trying to kind of leverage that and use that and reuse that so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, every time? Yeah, so we believe in depth of the work we do versus breadth. And so we've done 150 projects, which is amazing. And we go really deep and we have profound impact on the organizations, but we're not working with a thousand organizations. That's bothered us because that's not as inclusive as we could be. And so you raise a really good question, which is what do we do with all these learnings? And so what we did is we created another part of the foundation, which is we run highly practical workshops where we can now take what's been learned from that managing through a financial crisis for that one organization. That expert now has a philosophy and approach, and now we can share that to 50 organizations at a time, as long as it's highly practical. Just watching a video or a webinar, we just don't think that the learning stick. It's not that impactful. So we have high engagement practical workshops, which have now reached 600 ventures. And so we're trying to open source the learnings from our projects 
through these workshops. And we're going to be doing a lot more of these workshops in the next five years. I think that's great. You know, the thing that provoked this last question, I'll give you the context where it comes from and then ask you if or how that might fit. So a few years ago, I was working with this very large pharmaceutical multinational. And part of my work with them involved one-hour coaching sessions with executives in different parts of the world and different businesses. And they would work on what we call the leadership challenge, something that they were struggling with in terms of their personal leadership. And it could be anything, absolutely anything, as long as it was meaningful and really important for them. And as I'm talking to someone in Brazil, I know that, you know, I talked to someone in Turkey last month on exactly the same issue, but I can't reveal that because that's confidential. And I thought about it, I'm just one guy in a company and I can see these connections in the space of a relatively small consulting engagement. And what a lost opportunity. And how can organizations get better at capturing the amazing amount of knowledge that keeps getting generated and regenerated? That was in the back of my head with my question to you. And I could see how workshops do it, but I wonder whether there's some other more demand-driven mechanism I have a problem. This is the category of my problem. You know experts that have done it before, and that's kind of your matching. I think that's your solution. But then there's, you know, the five other entrepreneurs that have dealt with it. And from their point of view, they have deep expertise and experience and context in dealing with that problem. So they're not as maybe as wise as the expert, but they've just done it. I don't know. Wouldn't it be interesting to kind of connect them in some way, in some kind uh, of learning uh, A hundred percent. I mean, it's like a, a peer circle. And yes. so without a doubt, there's real opportunity. I mean, the dream is that RippleWorks doesn't need to exist in a couple of decades, that the skills and capabilities mm -hmm. have been distributed around the world and that people are able to help each other. And so I absolutely agree with you that the idea of peer circles, of which we've just piloted three of them, and they've been really successful and not necessarily at the CEO level. It founds out that we learned that CEOs have some level of access to, if it's through their funders or what have you, but their leadership teams have no access to development, to improvement, mm -hmm. to skill building. And so, like I said, I think you're sitting in our strategy sessions <laughs> because it absolutely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's great to hear you're doing that. And I could definitely see that opportunity. So it sounds like RippleWorks will be your thing, your passion, and it's not even right to say it's your passion. It's the manifestation of who you want to be, I think, as a leader now and in the future. It seems like it's going to, I mean, no one can predict the future for someone who's had various careers as you have, but it sounds like this is it, is what it sounds like. I am in my dream position. My job now is to continue to build the next generation of leaders in RippleWorks, to grow RippleWorks, to turn it from a startup to a legacy. You know, we were funded by all things by cryptocurrency at the beginning. It was worthless when we funded it. It was from Chris Larson personally and from Ripple, the company. And now that cryptocurrency is worth something. And so we have an opportunity to build a very meaningful foundation, the likes of some of the larger foundations in the country. And so we are on that mission. That's my focus. You know, it's funny you mentioned cryptocurrency. We only have a few minutes left and I have a long list of things I wanted to ask you about and we're not going to get to all of them. So maybe we'll call this the short answer phase of our conversation. Okay. So you know a lot about cryptocurrency, about blockchain, and more and more people know a lot about that. I have to say that I have more people asking me, you know, Sid, what do you think about cryptocurrency? I don't know a single thing about cryptocurrency, but because I'm a business school professor, they figure I know. And why are they asking? Because they want to invest. It just happened the other day with the son of a friend of mine. He's maybe 32. He asked my opinion. Why is everyone all of a sudden trading 
cryptocurrency. And I mean, is this just kind of gambling or what's the story here? Yeah. So, okay. Short version responses. Yeah. There's uh, Very it's short. important. It's a hard one. <laughs> yep. Break up blockchain and cryptocurrency, two different things. Blockchain, a beautiful technology that's going to be here to stay, but has profound implications on the world. Cryptocurrency is the lubricant that makes blockchain work. Cryptocurrency without blockchain is more of a speculation. And so people are looking for chances to make a lot of money. So why don't we do it? Now, Having said that, there's another thing about cryptocurrency when you start to talk to the Wall Street people is they use the fancy word correlation, non-correlation. It doesn't correlate to another asset class. And today, the, as we become global, the world is becoming more correlated. And so you invest in, you know, it used to be you do stocks and bonds because they're not correlated. They're more correlated. Cryptocurrency isn't correlated so much so. So Wall Street's interested in it for that reason and potentially becoming a new asset class like equities and bonds. It's true. I think a lot of the big banks are developing businesses. And the banks should because blockchain is powerful for the banks. It's a frictionless way to move money around the world. That's the power of blockchain. Gets me to the next question about NFTs, which I don't know if you followed NFTs very closely, but crypto is closely connected in that it seems like cryptocurrencies are being used to buy some of these, at least some of the big numbers. NFTs were introduced to me by a junior colleague who knew about it because that's what someone who's 30 knows and someone who's, let's say, double that age doesn't know. What's your sense of NFTs? Is this going to be an asset class? Is it a reasonable investment? What do you think about it? You know, we started this conversation with Jack Welsh and Bill Gates didn't get the internet. <laughs> NFTs don't make a ton of sense to me personally, but I'm becoming a little old school bringing in my legacy points of view. The part that intrigues me about NFTs is there's so much energy behind them that you do have to listen to the consumer a little bit. So where I probably honestly would have discarded it, I think I shouldn't because I need to read the tea leaves of the interest and better understand it. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a really good response in light of one of the things you teach at Stanford that you described earlier, right? It's exactly about what you're saying. Don't let that legacy thinking and assumptions kind of get you. So you know a lot about real estate. I'm wondering what you think about Zillow. Zillow has been a great organization for the real estate industry. So at the end of the day, it aggregates leads for realtors because that's where we all go to look up houses and housing prices and all of that. So yeah. Zillow is a solid organization providing a role for consumers and realtors. And realtors aren't going away. So it's a lead gen. How about the biggest of them all, Amazon? Yeah, I mean, Amazon, we all depend on it now. So it's here. Now I would just love Jeff Bezos to learn a few things from his ex-wife and uh, <laughs> Mackenzie Scott and focus some of his energy on distributing his tremendous wealth to do good in the world. Yeah, and what do you think is... So you've been in e-commerce for many, many years, and Amazon is kind of, they're the headline, even though there's so many other companies in it. How do you compete with Amazon? What if Amazon wanted to go into the photography business? What if Amazon wanted to go into, you name it, actually, they are in every business by now anyways. How do you compete with someone like that? You know, when you advise, certainly have students that are going to startups or creating startups, and it's not just the Amazon, you know, you could think about all the giants, Facebook and Google, and they're unbelievable power. And how do you compete with these four or five unbelievable giants? Well, you and I both advise business students. And so this is a common thing. The class that I run is about forming companies to go mm -hmm. um, yeah. start new enterprises. Yeah. Rule one, don't try to out Amazon, Amazon. You're not going to win on price. You're not going to win on efficiency. So you got to win on something else. The other is when an organization becomes really big, a great strategy is to zoom in and focus on something narrow. Etsy, StubHub, Airbnb, 
all came out of the marketplace of eBay. But eBay wasn't great at rentals, Airbnb. eBay wasn't great at artists, Etsy. And so zooming in and identifying one part that you can do better than Amazon Why is Etsy still existing even though Amazon is there? Because Etsy provides a really great, important niche from the artist side. So just don't try to out Amazon, Amazon. Yeah. What do students ask you? Like, is there a very common question? Probably if they're in your class, they've already started something or they're going to. Is there a short list of the most common things they're worried about or thinking about or asking you about? Very common is co-founders. How do I evaluate Mm -hmm. co-founders? Usually co-founder issues come up almost always especially in a class when you know you're not necessarily picking a co-founder from anywhere it's just from the population of your class in business school so co-founders is a whole topic how do you know when you found product market fit is a whole other theme like how do you know that you got it right how do you pivot when you don't think you have it right is another real common theme how much money do you spend on marketing how much do you care about profitability right now that the gross margins work versus mm-hmm. just sell the product Those are probably some of the biggest questions. Well, I can keep going with the short answers, but it would never end. And you've been generous with your time. We've been going for an hour and change. So I'll give you my last question I'd like to ask people, which is about advice. But it's specifically advice to yourself. If you can magically go back in time when you were 21-year-old Doug Galen and lean over to yourself and say, you know, if there's one thing you want to know about life, about work, about career, or there's one mistake you don't want to make, or there's something you want to think about... What would that be? What would be the advice to yourself at the age of 21? It's a particularly fun question for me because we have a 21-year-old daughter. And so I get to relive it a little bit with Jessica. I think the advice I would whisper into my ear is don't go after what I should do. Go after what I want to do and use that as my true north. And I guess the follow-on would be if I go after what I want to do and it isn't right, that's okay. Stop. It's okay to stop and try again of what I want to do versus what I should do. Yeah, there is a belief often among young people that there's permanence to every decision that they make. And it's actually not true. Most business school students, for example, are in a different job within two years. And the amount of time, as you may know, that they spend trying to figure out what that job is going to be is unbelievable. It's almost like life and death. But in fact, when you go look at the data two years down the line, so many of them have done something different. So I think that's pretty wise. Doug, thanks so much for spending time with me on the SIDCast teaching us a little bit about Ripple Works. I think it's really exciting what you're doing and your personal journey as well. It's been fun to engage with you and learn from you. Thank you, Sid. I've thoroughly enjoyed my time with you and love the work that you're doing on your podcast. Thank you for listening to the Sidcast. I'm really excited to be bringing you season three and really appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series and you will never miss a single episode. I welcome all feedback and I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten some great commentary over the course of the first two seasons and lots of great suggestions as well. You can contact me via my website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company. <laughs>